0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be a Q&A episode with uh, nutrition-only questions. And a lot of the questions were about similar topics, so I tried to batch those questions together. We have some stuff about uh, post-workout nutrition. We have some stuff about fiber, some discussions about tracking, uh, bulking and cutting, metabolic damage. And so I tried to bulk some of them together, but if there were a bunch of similar questions, I just picked one of them because obviously that'll cover the bases. So let's jump into it. First question's from Mickey D. And he or she asks, is there an optimal ratio of carbs to protein post-workout for to promote faster muscle repair slash gains? Um, and my, my first thought was like, meh, this is a bit of minutia for almost everybody. This is a little bit of majoring in the minors. You know, Let's say there is an optimal ratio of carbs to protein post-workout to promote faster muscle gains how much more benefit are you getting for that effort? Like, is this a meaningful thing? Is this something that you do and it's going to cause meaningful gains? I'll st- we'll start by saying no, it's not. Um, I'll, I'll end with a bit of a recommendation. But what you need to know is, listen, if, you're, if your goal is to maximize gains, what you want is to eat an amount of calories that matches your goal, right? So if it's a uh, deficit, if you want to lose fat, if it's maintenance, looking for recomp, and if you're in a surplus, obviously we're looking for optimal muscle gain. You wanna eat an amount of calories, first and foremost, that matches your goal. Then you wanna eat at least 0.8 grams per pound of protein, and you wanna do that, split that much protein over about three to five meals, uh, eaten every three to six hours or so. right, so eat an amount of calories, first and foremost, that matches your goal, then eat enough protein, then eat that protein over three to five meals, eaten every three to six hours, and then probably don't eat super low carb. Um, and so when I say that, people go, oh, how much, how much, how much? Listen, if you're not ketogenic, you're probably fine if you're doing hypertrophy style training only. Um, the amount of carbs that you might require is gonna come down to the the amount, how much, how glycolytic the amount of, the, the type of training that you're doing. And hypertrophy is moderately glycolytic. It's not as glycolytic as like, you know, uh, hit style training or your bootcamp classes or sports. But it certainly requires carbohydrates. And so as long as you're not super low in carb, it's going to be fine. And so eat an amount of calories that matches your goal. Eat at least uh, 0.8 grams per pound of protein. Eat that protein over three to five meals eaten every three to six hours or so. And don't go super low on carb. If you do all of that, guys, you're like 99% of the way there. And this like pre-workout, post-workout nutrition, like... Ends up being indistinguishable. Like there's no way you could find a research paper where you know people did all of that stuff the same, but it you know at the end of the day the ratio of carbs to protein in the post-workout meal was a difference maker in muscle growth. It just won't happen. It won't. Uh, What I will say is, the lower um, your calories go, so if you're in a deficit, the more it might matter to have your carbs more or, or a higher percentage of your total daily carbohydrate intake around your training. So again, if you're at maintenance or a surplus, this like carb timing, let's say call it nutrient timing is going to matter a whole lot less because you just have an overall abundance of nutrients. If you are in a deficit, you might, maybe, maybe if you're looking to squeak out all the gains possible, you might want to have a higher percentage of your total carbohydrate intake in that peri-workout window, which means in that pre, intra, and post-workout window, let's say plus, you know, take your workout time plus or minus two hours, uh, maybe three hours, you'd probably want to have the majority or at least 50% of your carbohydrates in that window. But again, at maintenance and a surplus, because you just have so many nutrients, this doesn't matter a whole lot, basically doesn't matter at all. Remember, your habitual intake of protein, your habitual intake of carbohydrates is going to matter like orders of magnitude more than your acute intake, your nutrient timing, your anabolic window. It's like Man, if you're doing things on a daily basis, split like semi-logically over three to five meals, you're good to go. Uh, If I had to make a recommendation, I would have somewhere around 30-ish, 30 to 40, maybe 25 to 45 grams of protein in that post-workout meal. Obviously, depending on how large you are, that number could be higher or lower on that spectrum uh, with maybe the same amount of carbohydrates But I would say the post-workout carbohydrate discussion is mostly for people who are training again later that day. Um, You know, if if you're an athlete and maybe you have a a skills session in the morning or like a weights session in the morning and then cardio or conditioning later, having carbohydrates after the first workout before the second workout to replenish glycogen in the short term is really important. But dude, if you're training today and then you're not training again for like 26 hours or something, You have plenty of time to replenish glycogen. This is not like a you need to run home and have fucking cereal or your muscles are going to shrivel up into a raisin and you won't have glycogen for tomorrow. You're training tomorrow and sometimes not again for two days, sometimes not again for three days. And so this like rush to, and yes, uh, replenishing glycogen isn't the only reason you would have carbohydrates uh, post-training. They can be muscle sparing. They can decrease cortisol a little bit. Do those manifest, those things sound cool, but do they manifest in a ton more muscle growth? Probably not. Uh, And if you can get some carbs in, that's great. But I would focus on eating enough calories on a daily basis, eating enough protein on a daily basis, eating those calories and protein over three to five meals, split maybe every three to six hours, and don't go super low in carbohydrate, and you're going to be good to go. Um, Piggybacking on that, Sarah Copeland asked, I'm having most of my carbs in that uh, peri-workout slot, which... By the way, peri-workout, again, just means in that pre-, intra-, and post-workout window. So the the area around your training. So she said, I'm having most of my carbs in that peri-workout window, but I'm training in the PM. Is that okay? It's absolutely okay, Sarah. But remember, if you're at maintenance or a surplus, this is not going to matter basically at all. Uh, And I wouldn't maybe expend so much mental energy trying to organize it this way. If it works for you and doesn't cost you a lot of mental energy, then that's great. If you're in a deficit and you're really trying to squeak out the best training that you can, yeah, that that probably makes some sense to me. Um, but again, it might not be uh, worth the mental effort, depending on you know how much effort it is taking you. Excellent. Next couple of questions are on fiber. Bree Marie asks or says, "I'm constipated." Uh, but I'm regularly having 22 to 26 grams of fiber at 17,50 to 1900 calories. So at face value you're, I can tell you're asking this because that is inadequate that sounds like an adequate amount of fiber, especially at that calorie intake. It sounds like you're in a really great spot. However, you're having symptoms that don't reflect that. you're, you're constipated. Um, and so yeah it's there's no direct answer. The only thing I can give you are things that you might boxes you might want to check things you might want to try. The first would be make sure you're properly hydrated. This can be a big one. Make sure you're, you know, people are like, how much water should I drink? Listen, you can start with something like half your body weight in ounces per day. It's a semi-arbitrary statement, but it gets people in the ballpark. And then you can check your pee because your your pee color is a pretty damn good uh, indicator of hydration status. And if your pee is like lemonade or lighter, you're good to go. If it's like yellow Gatorade or darker, you're probably not hydrated enough. And so I would start with that, Bree. I would make sure that you're, you're, uh, hydrated, uh, daily adequately. The next would be like, people want this like discussion of like, oh, should I have more insoluble fiber, more soluble fiber? Which one of them do I need more? It turns out this probably isn't a huge, like there's not, uh, one of these that you should eat more of in one scenario and less of another. Uh, it's a bit trickier than that. There's so much overlap. Both of them can be helpful for, for, um, aiding in constipation, and a lot of sources of fiber are actually a blend of these two things. It's not like certain things, it's not like berries are this and and grains are that. It's like most of them have a blend. And so I wouldn't worry too much about that. I would start with trying to make sure that you're adequately hydrated. And then I would try going lower in fiber. Um, and then, I again, this is going to sound like we're just throwing fucking darts at a wall, but on some level like gut, like this like digestive system, like constipation, stuff like IBS. There's, uh, you know, people talking about, um, you know, dealing with like low FODMAP diets and food sensitive. There's like a lot of guess and check here. So I would start with making sure you're adequately hydrated. Then I would try lowering your fiber, let's say below 20 and do that for two weeks and see what happens. If that doesn't help or it gets worse, maybe I would try going higher in fiber and try and get up to that 30 gram mark, let's say. If you're eating X amount of fiber and you're having symptoms, sometimes, it and and especially if you're you're like objectively in that adequate range, try going lower and then try going higher. And unfortunately, this is a guess and check game. There's no perfect answer. You could be constipated for a number of reasons. But how much fiber you're eating, maybe it's too much, maybe it's not enough, and you being hydrated would be the first three things I would check. Next question is from Erin's at home. And she asks, other than good poops, And I'm, and I'm uh, paraphrasing her question here. Other than good poops, what are the benefits of fiber? I would absolutely say digestive health, gut health, satiety, and potentially lower cholesterol would be the top four for me. Um, A little lower cholesterol. I don't think it's a huge deal, meaning I don't think it has a massive magnitude of effect, but it does have an effect. And so obviously we're going to throw that on the pile. Satiety is a good one from a from a recognition that caloric balance is important for health, that having body uh, a decent body composition is one important factor of health, and so eating foods that are higher in satiety are probably naturally over the long term going to lead to just a, a subconscious less eating, right? And so the satiety benefits of fiber can't go understated. They are absolutely an important part of eating fiber. Yes, digestive health and having regular good poops is a huge one, absolutely. Um, but you said other than that, so we're gonna focus on the other ones. And the last one would be G, would be just overall gut health, which is an absolute woo woo term. That I'm not saying it is woo woo. Gut health freaking exists for sure. But anybody who's gonna go super in depth and and give you these like massive specific reasons uh, probably is trying to sell you something. Like just very simply, guys, when we think about the benefits of eating fiber for our gut, what happens is most of the food that you eat gets broken down absorbed, metabolized before it gets to your large intestine, before it gets to your colon, where a lot of your gut microbiota live. Uh, Fiber doesn't. Fiber doesn't get broken down until it gets to the colon and it makes it to the large intestine. And it it can be at least partially broken down there. And what happens is when it gets broken down there, it feeds the gut bacteria on uh, short chain fatty acids, which is good. It promotes a healthy gut microbiota. And the, a longer discussion can be had in another podcast about what that means, what the benefits of that are, identifying if that's not the case. For today, just understanding that having a healthy gut microbiota and is, is probably important for a wide array of facets when it comes to health is what I'd like to get across. And eating a lot of what we would call prebiotic fiber, basically just dietary fiber, is going to be a really, really helpful way for you to feed the, the, that gut, bio, uh, the gut bacteria in your colon which again can can lead to some knock-on health benefits. So let's not get too in-depth. Let's not get too out in the weeds. Let's not get too like gut health guru. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, fiber is one of the things that we can do, one of the easiest and best things we can do to promote a healthy gut microbiota. Cool. Brie Red asks, I'm a small female in a deficit. How much fiber do I need? Something like at least 10 to 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories isn't a bad place to start because it is going to come down to to like, on average, it's going to come down to body weight and size, which are again, two big components of calorie intake. And so we can say something like at least 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories isn't a bad place to start. And so I don't know how much you weigh. You said small female. So, I'm, uh, and you're in a deficit. So I can't imagine calories are that high, likely, uh, almost certainly below 2000. And so I would say something like 15 ish grams is a decent place to start 15 to 20 would be a good place to start and then again if we circle back to the original question of you know I'm constipated but I'm having this much fiber it's like it's you know it's important to pay attention to your digestion and if you're eating consistently 15 grams of fiber on average and you have loose stool or you're constipated it's important for you to address that. Uh, And obviously increasing or decreasing fiber can be one of the tools that you can can use to kind of rectify that. And so what I would do is I would pick a number that is reasonable, let's say 15 to 20, and I would do that on average. I would count it. You know, again, we're going to talk about, I don't think fiber is something you need to count for your entire life. I think you should eventually adopt a needing pattern that kind of gets you in the ballpark of eating enough fiber consistently without needing to track it. But in the beginning, I would say it's not something that, it is something that I would recommend tracking in the short term just to see how much you're eating. If you're listening to this and you're like, man, I have no fucking clue how much fiber I eat. Well, then track it for two weeks. Make sure you're weighing and tracking your vegetables for two weeks. You don't need to maybe do that forever, but just to get a ballpark of how much fiber you're eating and then kind of think about what your digestive, uh, what your digestive health is like. And so that would be where I would start. Cool. Next question, we're moving on from fiber, is from Sarah Clark. And she asks, if I'm counting just calories and protein but I'm finding that lots of foods, calories aren't accurate. What should I do? So essentially you're counting calories, but uh, counting calories and protein, not carbs and fats. Uh, And you're finding that when you look at the label, it's not adding up perfectly. What do you do? And and first and foremost, let's take a step back. Understanding that uh, counting calories and protein instead of all the macros can be one way to add some flexibility to your life in a world where if calories and protein are equated, you will see almost identical body composition results. And of course, listen, if you're not at the extreme ends of super high carb or super low carb and you're somewhat on the average, which most people will be when they count calories and protein, it's all, it's going to be almost entirely the same for everybody who's not a professional athlete, basically. And so I do recommend this strategy for most people, not for everybody. Some people love counting the macros. Some people have a reason to count all the macros. Most of us don't, um, and so I'll start by saying you're right. If you just count calories and protein, the, you will not be, um, you will find that net carbs will throw this off a bit. Companies that that utilize net carbs as a as a tool to lower the calorie amount they put on their nutrition facts, uh, net carbs again being the subtraction of the calories from sugar alcohols and fiber from the overall calorie content of a food. Based on the idea that our, again, we talked about fiber, based on the idea that your body does not extract calories from fiber or sugar alcohols. Now, that is not true, by the way. Your body does extract calories from fiber and sugar alcohols. Not all of them, right? While a gram of carbohydrate might be four calories, a gram of fiber or sugar alcohols might be something like two calories. I really do not know where companies get off, assuming there's that you you extract zero calories, because it's just a blatant lie. Um, and we... You know, you're gonna extract differently based on which food it is and and also there's uh, between subject differences. So like you and me might eat the same food and I digest, you know, 3.1 calories. and You digest 1.9 calories. And so it really is pretty pretty mind-boggling that companies can, can get away with this. A <sighs> couple things that I think about here. Listen, if you list the pros and cons of counting calories and protein, this will be in the cons. It will. You're gonna be off in an absolute sense by a tiny, tiny bit. Tiny bit. Now... I would say that this really doesn't matter at all because if you are consistently off by the same amount, which if you eat a relatively habitual diet, you will be, uh, you're gonna be off by, let's say, 100 calories a day on average. If you are consistently off by 100 calories on average, then that data is still really, really great. Will it throw off the absolute numbers that you're putting in your tracker? If you put uh, 1700 calories, was it really 1800? I don't know, maybe. But who really cares about the absolute number? You're looking at this stuff for for a directional component. You're looking, let's say you're in a calorie, you're trying to lose weight. Like, Who cares the exact number that you're eating? You care that what you are habitually eating is enough, is too much, is not enough, is the right amount. And if it's consistently off by the same amount, listen guys, if something is consistently inconsistent, um if something is always off by 100 calories then you can still use that data like it doesn't really matter this absolute okay so so you're off by 72 calories today but on average if you're always off by 50 to 100 calories a day then that's in the same direction which in this case it would be it would be under that's fine it's consistently inconsistent to a point where we can have a uh, um 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 it's it's it has high uh not not precision but it has high relative accuracy uh and so i really think that this is a small very very small price to pay for the added flexibility that you will see when you're when you go from counting all the macros to just counting calories and protein and to stay on that topic for just a sec if you've been counting all the macros you have come you know to this scenario where at the end of the night you look at my fitness pal or whatever you're using and you've thought to yourself Shit, I have this random fucking assortment of macros and I need to create this weird Frankenstein meal of this weird macro uh, um, uh, combination, this weird matrix of macros to make this weird meal that I would just never normally eat, but oh, I have seven grams of fat and 21 grams of carbs and six grams of protein, so I need to have whatever. When in reality, When you're counting calories and protein, it can become a whole lot easier. You'll get to the end of the day, let's say, and you're like, okay, I have 41 grams of protein left and 800 calories. And you can just go ahead and eat anything that hits those two requirements. And when you decrease the variables, you open up a high level of flexibility. And honestly, a high level of flexibility uh, will probably yield to a higher level of adherence, And, you know, somebody might be like, okay, but I hear better, but macros are better. It's like, yeah, but they're really not. Like, you know, in every diet study that's ever been done, when calories and protein are equated, people lose the same amount of weight, maintain the same amount of muscle, unless you are at the extremes. If you go all the way keto versus high carbohydrate, yeah, there's gonna be a difference. But most people, when left to their own devices, when they count calories and protein, end up eating about an average amount of both. Um, Most people aren't going to, Eat zero carbohydrates and only fat, or zero fat and only carbohydrates. Um, and in those cases, if you are somebody who would default to being to avoiding one of the macros, then yeah, you you might want to count all three macros. Awesome. Moving right along here. Uh, Best Tammy. Hi Tammy asks. Uh, okay, calorie calculator says my maintenance is nineteen hundred but my body says to stop at 1700. What do I do? Well, my first question for you, Tammy, is what does my body says stop mean? Does it mean that you get full at 1700? Are you getting feedback from your body that you just are uh, satisfied and satiated like at 1700? Or are you saying that if you eat more than 1700, you gain weight? Because there's two different answers here. Listen, if you're if the calorie calculator says it's 1,900, which by the way, the calorie doesn't freaking know you at all. It's a total guess, but you might as well try. And so if your body says stop at 1,700, if what you're talking about is that you get full at 1,700, then I would try eating 1,900. I would try eating more. And maybe I would try decreasing the overall satiety of my diet, including, listen, listen, if you get to 1,700 and you're like, "No, my body says I'm good, I'm full, you're lying. You could have two Reese's cups and you could get to 1,900. Like, my, my, you always have room for a PB and J is like a fame is not famous, but that's something that I would say to you. Like, you know, your body says stop at 1700, but what is your brain would say yes to, you know, uh, a couple York peppermint patties or something like, you know, you could still get to 1900. If I sit with you and I'm like, Hey, here's two scoops of, you know, two bites of ice cream, you get yourself to 1900. So what I would say is go to 1900 and see what happens. Your life you know, you, for all you know, you could go to 1900 and maintain your weight and have more delicious food in your life. And so I would go to 1900 and see what happens. If you mean that you gain weight after the 1700 calories, if you're like, hey, after I eat more than 1700, I, I notice that I, my weight trends upward. I might still push you to try and eat 1900. Not because the calorie calculator is all-knowing. It's not some all-knowing genie, right? But it leaves clues. And you might as well try... like. In general, guys, in general, we should be trying to eat as much as possible and then obviously achieving whatever weight we want. And so, you know, at any given weight, eating the most that you possibly can while maintaining that weight is going to be your best life. And so if you're like, hey, calorie calculator says I should eat more, what should I do? Maybe try and eat more. I'm not saying the calorie calculator knows exactly everything, but maybe try and eat more. I mean, everybody should be at some point in their maintenance journey pursuing what is the highest amount I can eat at this body weight that's where I'm gonna have the best muscle gain, the best performance, the best sleep, the best mood, the best lifestyle. Cool. On that note, if you feel like, okay, my weight goes up after 1700, uh, you know, I eat 1890 one day and my weight spikes up, like get, pump the brakes. I would just give it a chance for the longer term. Like give it a chance for six weeks. A lot of times we see a slight weight increase whenever you increase calories, but it levels off. Sometimes it comes right down. And for all you know, maybe you gain one pound But you get to eat 200 more calories. That is a trade everybody listening to this is going to make. And so give it a shot and see what happens. Next question. How many more do we got? Oh, no. This is going to be a long one. Uh, Okay. The page right asks, mini bulks and cuts throughout my maintenance journey as opposed to longer bulk. And so I'll get to the mini cut discussion. But... Mini anything to me doesn't really make sense in almost any context, especially mini gaining. Mini gaining is just dumb. Gaining muscle happens super freaking slowly and anything short of a six-month commitment to being in a surplus is pretty useless. Dead serious, guys. Like muscle gain happens super slowly and people hear six months and they think they need to gain a whole bunch of weight. Like we're talking about one to two pounds a month and if you want to go on the shorter end and go one pound a month, that's, you're very welcome to. That's six pounds over six months. It's a really small change in body composition. By the way, those, some of those pounds are muscle. And so it's not like you're just gaining a bunch of fat. You're not. And so, uh, you know, I would commit to the longer term. Mini gaining is, is almost an oxymoron because of how long gaining muscle or how slow it happens and how long it takes to gain muscle. Um, when we talk about mini cuts, um, I guess I'm going to do a whole podcast on this. But uh, here's my take. The goal of a mini cut, so what is a mini cut? Mini cut is usually like a four week deficit period in the, in the during your gaining phase. So while you're gaining fat, maybe you get to a point where you're like, yeah, you know, I'm carrying a little bit more body fat than I want. It would be nice for me to lean out a little bit and then get back to it. It's almost like a quick trimming of the fat and then returning to gaining. Um And when I say that, people are like, wow, it sounds great. You know, I'm in the middle of a gaining phase. I'm feeling uncomfortable in my skin. I have a little bit more body fat than I want. It would be great to cut a little bit of fat and then get back to gaining. It sounds cool. Um, Usually how it plays out though, guys, and I'll try and be unbiased here, but I've seen it time and time again you you've been gaining a bit and maybe you're up a couple pounds higher than you'd like to be you're starting to get uncomfortable and then here floating in the in the ether is this idea of oh i could just i could just quickly cut a little bit and it feels like the thing you want to do because you're starting to get uncomfortable it's 4 weeks let's say you lose something like 4 to 8 pounds right that's 1 to 2 pounds a week the 8 being super high i mean 2 pounds a week on average is pretty damn aggressive and so let's, let's say you, anywhere from four to eight pounds, but all of what I'm about to say would also go for the eight pound scenario. Let's say you lose six pounds in four weeks, right? Let's say you gained eight pounds over your gain, you lost six pounds uh, in your mini cut, and now you're gonna go back to gaining. Man, in the first two weeks of going back to gaining, you're gonna gain two to five of those pounds back, mostly because a lot of those pounds that you lost were glycogen and water that you're gonna gain back when you go back to eating more. It's like I've seen people lose five pounds in a mini cut and gain four or three of them back in the first two weeks of eating more. It's like you just spent four weeks of your life less happy because you were aggressively dieting or felt like you were aggressively dieting, getting worse gains, and you basically negated all of it within like, I don't know, two to four weeks of going back to what you were doing. It just seems like a poor use of time, especially in a world where we are flip-flopping between these two things way too often, um, which we'll get to in a second. It's like, you know, you gain two to five pounds back right when you go back to eating more because you store more glycogen and water and you have more stomach content at any any given time. And you're like, what the fuck did I just aggressively diet for? Like it just feels, it it ends up being an amount of weight that you net out that is not worth it. In my opinion, I'm not saying that you, you net zero pounds just feels not worth it to me. Some people would be like, yeah, you know, you give your digestive system a break because when you're gaining, you're eating a lot of food. Your digestive system is working overtime. Man, I gained for, again, I'm not going to use, I'm just going to use myself as an anecdote and I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to, I know that one person's anecdote is not how it goes for everybody and so I'll, I'll get to that. But I gained for about 18 months. That's 18 months of your body digesting more food than it really needs and I don't know did I have gut issues was I have digestive problems like I didn't feel any of that now maybe you do what I'm trying to say is you have to have an actual reason you can't be like most people like ah, give the gut a break it's just an excuse for you to lean into restriction when you should be instead of at any given turn you know uh, uh, trying to find the quickest route to going back to cutting calories and restricting, you should be getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Like the, one of the best benefits of gaining is, you know, coming to terms with the fact that you're, you, you know, your happiness shouldn't be tied to your leanness. You should be comfortable in abundance. You should be enjoying more food. You should be enjoying, you know, muscle gain focused on strength. You know, not worried so much about being your leanest all the time. And here you are, at the first sight of discomfort aggressively dieting for a net loss of something very little that I would say is negligible for almost everybody. So if you're like, oh, I give the gut a break, man, you better have some real symptoms that, that signal to you that you do need to give the gut a break. Because I would say almost never has this happened to me in my experience with my clients, not just myself. I I will admit that it can happen. It absolutely can happen. Totally. It can absolutely happen. But could you accomplish this in a different way, by the way? If you're like, yeah, I really need to give my gut a break. I guarantee you just going to maintenance for one week, your gut will feel good. That's maintenance. We're not even cutting. We're taking one week at maintenance. What about three days at maintenance? What about three days in a deficit? Maybe that's give the gut a break. Like, what are we even talking about? It often feels like a cop-out to me. It feels like, you know, your first opportunity to get out of being uncomfortable to, to avoid the actual thing that you're trying to do, which is learn to stop restricting so quickly. I mean, most people, most people listening to this, let me just say many people listening to this, specifically women who maybe have spent their whole life trying to be leaner are finally doing a gain phase. And now we're giving them this weird opportunity to go right back into restriction at the first sight of gaining a tiny bit of body fat. And I'm not saying that's the only context. There are other contexts that it can be a little bit more applicable, certainly in the context of maybe competitors. Um, but even then, I would say you probably better off just continuing to gain. Now, somebody might come along and say, hey, you know, don't I gain more muscle per pound, which is something we call the P ratio. Don't I gain more muscle per pound that I gain if I'm leaner? Let me rephrase that. So people might say and have said in the past, and I've said in the past, that you probably gain better You probably gain more muscle per pound while you're leaner. And so a mini cut might be a good way to spend more time at a leaner body fat percentage while you're gaining. And that would be a reason for you to do a mini cut. You're like, Hey, I'm getting too fat and I'm going to start getting a suboptimal ratio of muscle to fat gained per pound. So if I get leaner, I can go back to getting a better P ratio. Recent research over the last couple of years has basically shown that the P ratio for, for the most part, isn't a thing. Um, you this is not true. You're going to, your P ratio, how much muscle uh, to fat ratio you gain per pound stays pretty static at all body fat percentages. And so it's really, again, not a reason to do that. So again, to kind of sum up, the flip-flopping kills me. Like get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mini cuts are not some hack where you're going to be able to go, you know, do gaining phases, gaining phases and never be uncomfortable. I'm a much bigger fan of seeing people commit to longer and slower gaining getting the hell out of the fat loss and restrictive mindset for a long time. Focus on getting stronger. Focus on, you know, devaluing your leanness and focus on other shit because I promise you your life is way better during a slow and long gain than it is during your four-week mini cut. Okie doke. Moving right along here. Uh, Amy Radloff uh, says, I've been reversing. I started at 125 pounds. I'm now 160. Previously anorexic. I was working with a coach and I'm feeling defeated. So I'll start by saying... Recovery from ED is obviously out of my scope, and so what I'm going to say is just going to be hopefully a pointing in in a helpful direction. But, man, there's more important shit than worrying about a little bit of extra fat gain when we're talking about recovering from anorexia or having a history of ED. Um, and I know that that's obviously not something who has had, somebody who has had an ED or has one or is recovering from one can really... <laughs> That's a difficult thing to internalize, but I just wanted to say it, that there's more important shit than this, and so you going from, well, I'll get to that in a second, but my guess is what you're saying is that you went from 125 to 160. You're feeling defeated because you think that you've gained more weight than you needed to. That's my guess. But geez, Amy, you you definitely needed to gain some weight, right? I think, I hope we're all in agreement with this. Like in recovering from anorexia, like body fat gain, is an important part of that. Uh, increasing in calories, getting yourself to a healthy body composition, which in your case was an addition of body fat, that was necessary. So kudos on you and hell yeah for doing that. I mean this is, a, I, I read this, and I'm just like massively, massively excited for you. Now I know that you are asking this, I think, I think you are asking this, in the context of maybe you overshot and you gained more fat than you needed to. Um, I don't know, I I can't say what more than you needed to gain is because frankly, aesthetics come second when we're talking about eating disorders and relationship with food. And so you've done a tremendous, tremendous job. Like fat loss and and aesthetics, man, you can do that anytime in your life. Like fat loss in, when we're comparing fat loss and uh, recovery from an eating disorder, fat loss is insanely easy in comparison. And so you've done the hard thing. You've really done the hard thing and you should be super, super proud. Like you might be, maybe, listen, maybe you are heavier than you'd like to be for the remainder of your life. Okay. Maybe that's true, but you're in a way better place than somebody at your height. I believe you said you were 5'8, 125 with, you know, dealing with anorexia. You're in a way better place now. And so there's a big congratulations for you. Um, Yeah. Anything else I'd like to say? I guess my advice would be to find a qualified professional to work with them on this, um, food, uh, food therapist, uh, uh, emotional eating specialist, you know, eating disorder specialist and work with them because it's going to be some combination of, you know, I, I believe that there's some combination. I'm not saying it's a 50, 50 combination, some combination of recognizing it's okay to have body composition goals while at the same time, you know, uh, training your brain to realize that there is more important stuff than that, and that body composition goals are not the be all end all. And your leanest body is not your happiest life. And so, again, it's for your for in your conversation, it's probably way more shifted in that direction, way further away from the body comp. But I think it's okay for you to recognize that you're also allowed to have aesthetic pursuits. Just maybe kind of reprioritizing and accepting that what you've done is fucking awesome and you should be super proud. So, alrighty, Moving along, we got two, oh, two more. I'm making good time here. Robert Saddlemeyer asks, can you damage your metabolism by a long-term deficit And I think he also asked, I didn't write it, but how might you uh, repair it, let's say. Um, So can you damage your metabolism by being in a deficit for a long time? So let's start by saying this. When you go into a deficit, your metabolism decreases as a defense mechanism to not die. You give your body less food. Your body says, oh shit, there's some scarcity present. There's some small microcosm of starvation that's happening right now. Our body isn't getting what we need, and if this continues, we will die. That is a fact. Your body thinks, okay, on some microcosm, this is starvation, and if we continue down this road, we will eventually die. And So your body says, okay, what's a, how can we prevent that from happening? Well, we can decrease our uh, metabolism so that we use less energy so we make the most of what you're giving us. This is called metabolic adaptation. And it is the reason we are here today. We have survived famine after famine after famine for millions and millions of years. We've uh, adapted genetically to be able to have this adaptive metabolism, to be able to adapt. And it is the reason we are here today. So we need to be very thankful for it in that regard. Now, in today's food environment where we have readily available, highly palatable, high-calorie foods, where we're way more likely to be at risk of overconsumption than underconsumption, our metabolism, this, this metabolic adaptation is not helpful. Um... It'd be much nicer for us to uh, have a very genetic adaptability to adapt upwards, which we do, by the way. It's just we don't have as much practice over the millions of years, um, and I say that you know, um, tongue in cheek, because obviously practice is the wrong word. But um, we do adapt upward. I don't need. I don't want to get too deep into that. Our metabolism does adapt in both directions. Is we're way more efficient at doing it in response to a deficit, though. So, can you damage your metabolism by a long-term deficit? No, almost definitely not, and definitely not in any real meaningful degree. You can absolutely have a suppressed metabolism due to being in a deficit for a long time. If, if you have been in a deficit for 20 weeks, and I come and I test your BMR, um, you know, we look at your average meat, let's say, it will be lower than what you might expect at your body weight. But the question is, if you were to return to maintenance calories for some time, would those metabolic adaptations disappear? And so what I'm gonna do is do my best to kind of summarize a recent study that was done. Um, I think it was titled something super annoying like metabolic adaptation is an illusion or something. It was super clickbaity, um, But it was actually a pretty, pretty awesome study. Uh, and also, I'm gonna link a podcast I did with Alan Aragon, one of literally the smartest dudes in the industry where we talk all about, quote, metabolic damage and damaging your metabolism and metabolic adaptation, and so I would absolutely go listen to that podcast because it's going to go way in depth, way more in depth on uh, this question. But to talk about this recent study on metabolic adaptation, um, the end result, and I'm going to break down the study in a second, was that it showed that even in rapid weight loss, a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 but what about the biggest loser? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about people who lose a lot of weight? What if you lose it really fast? Don't you damage your metabolism? You know, um, Let's look at the study. So what they did is they took uh, what was it? A hundred people in each group. Uh, it was a decent sized cohort. I don't remember exactly how many people, but, um, I remember it being a decent size, but obviously not, you know, thousands and thousands of people, but all of these people had obesity. So we're talking about people who had a lot of weight to lose and they were fed 1000 calories. So just listen to me. Like Remember, when the normal person is asking, when an average person is asking me about metabolic adaptation or metabolic damage, it's usually somebody who's like a little bit overweight who has some weight to lose. And so for you, it's less likely that you're gonna see extreme effects from dieting than somebody who's 500 pounds who loses 300 pounds. So the magnitude of your weight loss is something that is relevant here. And if you're like, hey, I need to lose 60 pounds or 50 pounds or 40 pounds, it's like, that's not the same as what I'm gonna talk about here, Um And so what we've done is we've tried to create, in these studies, we've tried to create more extreme scenarios, especially in, in, during the context of an, uh, you know, an obesity epidemic, we really, that is a population we do want to study. And so, you know, it's almost like this might not even apply to you. And we'll get to that in a second, but okay. So we have people with obesity and they were fed a thousand calories, super low calorie diet over nine weeks, right? So not a very long-term deficit, but an extremely aggressive deficit, These people lost an average of 30 kilograms in nine weeks, like 68 pounds or something. That is insane. Listen to me. They lost 30 kilos in nine weeks. And so if you think that that, like whatever happened to these people is going to be way higher magnitude than what's happening to you losing, you know, one to two pounds a week. Like this is 60 pounds in nine weeks. And so... Again, remember, try and try and take yourself out of the equation and say, hey, is, is what I'm doing anything like that? No, it's way less intense. And so whatever happened to this person, whatever happened to these people who lost 30 kilos in nine weeks is going to be more than what's going to happen to you who maybe you lose 30 kilos, but most people do that in much longer than nine weeks. And so when they tested them after the nine weeks, right? So at the end of their deficit, Their resting metabolic rate, so their basal metabolic rate, their, you know, uh, um, just the calories that are there, that are burned, just keeping the lights on, was 100 calories less than what you'd expect, and so this is what you're asking, can you damage your metabolism, can my metabolism go down lower than it should if I am in a deficit for a long time, and so after the nine weeks, by the way, that is the lowest low point, that is at the peak of their deficit. Their RMR was reduced 100 calories lower than where you'd expect it. And so this is all studied in a lab. They tested everybody's RMR. They have a bunch of calculations and then they test their actual RMR and it on average was about 100 calories less. And so you could say, hey, there you go. Their metabolism is damaged. It's damaged by 100 calories. Man, let's stop there for just one second. Um, That's 100 calories. This person lost 60 pounds. And the only thing that they've lost is 100 calories of, quote, metabolic damage. That's it? That might be a trade that every person who's done this study would make. If I told you, hey, you're going to lose 70 pounds, but you have to eat 100 calories less than you might have if you had never needed to lose that weight. Right? You might have to eat 100 calories less than somebody at your current weight who never had to lose the weight. You'd be like, okay, it sounds like an awesome trade. But what happened as they went to maintenance calories? So after the nine weeks, they transitioned everybody to maintenance calories and they tested them again after four weeks. After four weeks, their their metabolic adaptation was down to about 40 to 50 calories. So of that 100 calories, it's now only at 50 calories. So only 50 calories lower than where we would expect them. A follow-up, after a year, all of the metabolic adaptation was gone. Everybody's metabolism was back to where you would expect it. Now, it's easy to say... When you hear that, a very common devil's advocate will be, well, they probably gained all their weight back. And that is what people will say. It's like, hey, you know, your metabolism is damaged and you are primed for weight regain. That's what people will tell you. Oh, deficits don't work because when you lose the weight, you damage your metabolism and you prime yourself for weight regain and then you gain all the weight back. And that's the only way your body gets its metabolism back, let's say. These people of the 30 kilograms after a year gained five kilograms back on average. I get goosebumps because that is massively successful fat loss. That's a net average of 25 kilos down after a year. That's fucking unbelievable. That's amazing. And after that year, they gained, let's say, 12 pounds. 12 pounds of the 70 they gained back. And all of their metabolic adaptation disappeared. And so the... (laughs) Another thing that we tend to see or tend to think or tends to be an argument is that the more metabolic adaptation somebody incurs, the more that will be predictive of the weight they gain. Just like I said, it's like, hey, the more metabolic adaptation that you incur, the more likely you are to gain the weight back. And so when they tested all of the subjects, they saw, okay, the people who had more metabolic adaptation, because remember, these are averages. So in the beginning, it was 100. There were obviously people above 100, people below 100. And so they looked, hey, these people who were above 100 who incurred more metabolic adaptation, was that predictive of, like were those the people who were bound for weight gain? Like is this, like how much metabolic adaptation you incur, is that an independent predictor of future weight gain, of weight rebound? And it turned out it wasn't. It wasn't a predictor of the weight regain. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, And again, I'm not saying this study is a be all end all. It was a wonderful study and I, it, it brings me at least to the point that metabolic adaptation at best doesn't exist at all, maybe more realistically exists, but in a very, very small amount, and is going to be different from individual to individual because again, these are all done on averages. Um, cool. What's interesting is this study was actually not about metabolic adaptation. This study was done, and this is going to go back to, it's so funny because this was, a, I forgot what they call it, but it was like a secondary analysis. Um, this study was comparing weight loss at differ, differing carbohydrate uh, intake. And so the goal of this study actually was to see if eating carbohydrates, more carbohydrates, or less carbohydrates, uh, change the amount of weight that people lost. And we talked about counting calories and protein, and I had mentioned, hey, your, your carb to fat ratio will not matter if calories and protein are equated. And so, in this study, which was mostly meant to compare differing levels of carbohydrate, spoiler, spoiler alert, everybody lost the same amount of rate, uh, same amount of weight when calories and protein were equated, even with differing levels of carbohydrate intake. Um, what's funny is that the, the metabolic adaptation part of it is super fascinating, but the original study was meant to compare fat loss at different carbohydrate intake, which they didn't find anything, which guess fucking what? That goes on a pile of hundreds of other studies that tell us carbohydrates are not the reason that you can't lose fat. They have nothing to do with fat loss outside of calories and protein. Cool. That is the last question. That was quite a bit of a rant. There were definitely some longer questions there, but really, really fun stuff, guys. Appreciate you asking a question. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at jordanlipsfitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.